Good to be with you. Um, Jessica Roberts, thank you for that reading of the scripture. We continue to enjoy um, having those Mercy Hill members who are um, worshiping with us through our live stream to engage with us um, through the scripture reading. And so we're thankful, thankful for that. Uh, today, as we look at John chapter 13, we've been in the Gospel of John for a long time now. Everyone knows that. But as we look at John 13, I want to just warn you from the beginning, I have a very a long introduction and then a short sermon. So hear that, a long introduction and a short sermon. Trust me, I know you get worried when a pastor says he has a short sermon. It's like, oh, here we go. Um, today marks the birthday for Mercy Hill Church that Mercy Hill Church is nine years old. I looked back at, uh, had a Facebook memory that popped up this week, and it said that on September 22nd, 2011, that we held our first Bible study in our home. And I can tell you that it, it wasn't glamorous. There were uh, seven adults and six kids who were there. And some of you might think, is that even enough people to call a church? Seven adults and six kids? And the answer to that is there have been many times over the years in our unbelief where, where we struggled with that question. Is, is that enough? And um, what we have found to be true is that God has been faithful and it was enough because Jesus has given us His Holy Spirit and He's given us His Word and He's given us a mission that He's called each of us to be a part of the mission of making disciples, of training up others who would come to understand the love of the Father that's been poured out through the person of Jesus and that they would live their lives following after Him and surrendering their lives to Him. And so we have uh, been faithful to plod on over these years, passionately pursuing Jesus, but in many ways faithfully plodding. And from the beginning, our goal was not to start a church and, and to collect a big crowd. I've been a part of a church here in this city that grew to over a thousand people in the first three years. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, praise God for that, right? That a church would grow to over a thousand people in the first three years. So praise God. But I had also personally seen the cost of making Sundays the pinnacle of church life. Sunday was an amazing production. And while there's nothing wrong with doing things well, I think that we should uh, do things well. Uh, really believe that. But when we place so much emphasis on Sunday morning, then before we know it, we begin to equate church with a building that we attend for just one hour a week. On just one day a week. And it becomes really easy for us to, to kind of take the gospel. And as we think about the gospel, it can easily become relegated to just a portion of our lives. To just something that we do. And not who we are. And whenever you look at Paul's writings or Jesus' teachings, you would always see Paul as he wrote to churches. He would spend the first chapter saying... Because of Jesus, 
This is who you are. Which is all that matters. And then as a result of that, this is what God calls you to do. But if we get our doing in front of our being, then all of a sudden we'll think that Jesus is only pleased with us if we do a lot of things. And let's be honest, some people are really good doers and some of us are not very good doers. And so we found that it was important that that uh, as we begin dreaming about what would church look, look like, that if a group of people could come together, not so much to establish a church, but to make disciples of Jesus, understanding that each of them have been called by Jesus to be sent out as missionaries, to be committed to the hard work of living like a family who's on mission, to love Jesus together and to love one another And then to be on mission to a lost and dying world who don't know the amazing joy of being found by the Father who sent Jesus on our behalf, of being forgiven and cleansed, of being made right. And uh, I would say honestly, just doing the production on Sundays is probably, I, I don't know that, I used to say doing the production on Sundays and just attracting people, I used to say that's easier I don't know that I would say that anymore. Even that's very difficult. But I will say that uh, having a great Sunday production is probably less messy than the way of life that we have chosen in some ways. But we have become convinced that making Sunday the pinnacle of what it means to do church is not enough. And statistics have shown us that in our culture. It's not enough to put down the kind of roots into our hearts that it changes you in such a way that your Monday morning is lived differently. And that you relate to people at work with the attitude that God has primarily put me here, not not primarily to make a paycheck, but to share with these people about the love of the Father that they don't know. Not that making a paycheck is unimportant, because providing for your family is important, but it's also temporal compared to the eternal reward of seeing disciples made, of brothers and sisters being brought into the family that that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. And so... we We strongly believe that Sunday morning as vital... And as critical as it is, that Sunday morning alone is not deep enough to transform your own home. So that you not only read and study your Bible on your own, but that you see that the work that God has given you of making disciples begins primarily in your own home. In making disciples of the little ones who are lost and don't know that they have a Heavenly Father who unlike their parents, loves them perfectly. Because we love our children imperfectly. And so taking the time not just to take your kids to church, where you would view it as someone else's primary responsibility to disciple them, but that you would see that that Jesus has equipped you with that primary goal in life to make disciples, to grow your family up in the grace and mercy of Jesus so that they look and live like Jesus. And then here's the key. Then they go on to teach 
their children to do the same. And their children teach their children. If you want to know if the Christianity you find yourself in is rooted and deep enough to make disciples, then look at the programming that you are a part of in the church that you are a part of and ask the question, is this faith robust enough that it doesn't simply entertain my kids and get them here for a period of time but that it's rooted and deep enough in the way in which we are living our lives. Are they seeing a gospel witness in me that's deep enough that their hearts are being transformed and they're so radically committed to the person of Jesus that they can't wait to teach their children how to teach their children to follow Jesus. That is a robust faith. And that is a faith that our culture is largely losing. And I don't mean that you have to like set up Sunday school at home with like flannel boards and stick like pictures of Jesus up and every night at the dinner table uh, tell Sunday school lessons. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about a faith, a personal faith, that is so real and alive that you have a rhythm and a practice in your life of meeting with Jesus. Just like you go to the gym or just like you, you cut your grass. You schedule those things in your calendar because you know they need to be done and you're happy when they're done. But they're not like the most favorite things to do like watching Netflix or, or eating chocolate. And so you schedule them in your calendar because you know they're important. And you've, you've lived that way long enough that those common means of grace just begin to flow out of your life. And not only are they just important, but that you begin to love them because you love not just the means of grace, but the person of grace who is Jesus. That you come to know Him that well. And that the way in which you parent and the way that you make decisions about your money and the way that you relate to other people and open up your home and even give your things away... Your kids look at you and go, you're really odd, mom and dad. You're really weird the way you choose to live your life because the majority of my friends don't live like we live and they even question your parenting at times because you're living according to another kingdom. You're living according to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, which is a sacrificial kingdom that he's going to talk about today. And so we started this church with the idea that if we, if we attract a big crowd, which by God's grace we couldn't have done if we wanted to in Midtown. <laughs> Let's just be honest. People around here aren't interested in church. But if we attract a big crowd, we might not make disciples. But if we made disciples of Jesus Christ, we knew that we would make a church. And so that was our goal from the beginning. And it wasn't something that we just thought was a good idea. It was something that we felt that God had called us to do through the scriptures to make disciples who make disciples. So we established these little families called missional communities. And just really practically, we, we would come together and we do this today. It looks a little different in the pandemic, but we share a meal together and we dive into scripture together and we're in each other's lives together and we practice being on mission together. So we aren't merely telling people what to do, but like Jesus who lived with his disciples for three and a half years, we are modeling together what it looks like to follow Jesus. 
and to make disciples. And it's been difficult. Amen? It's been difficult. It's been messy. It's been very hard on our hearts. Because when people come and we treat each other like family and we care about the emotional needs of one another and then sometimes those people leave it's very difficult it's been hard opening up our homes and being hospitable isn't easy people just quite honestly they tear your stuff up (laughs) sometimes they steal your stuff we've experienced that sometimes it's hard just to know how to eat pizza together because we have to learn and train sometimes our own children hey please don't go through the line and take like seven pieces of pizza we're not going to have enough And so we are learning what it means to be a spiritual family together. And that's been the journey that we are on and that we've been on for the last nine years. And it's been difficult. And there's been a lot of times where we consistently have to say, I'm sorry, I know I offended you. That was not my intention. How can I make this right? Would you please forgive me? Real life lived out in relationship with Jesus and with others. And what that does, by the way, is that it, it kind of peels away any kind of um, veneer. I don't know what a good example would be, but a lot of times um, we'll maybe watch someone in sports and, and we'll hear like what they ran a 40-yard dash in. Or um, we'll see what they do, that they make look so easy. And we'll say, well, I know I couldn't do it that fast, but... I bet I'd be pretty fast. And then we get out there and time ourselves on the 40-yard dash and we're embarrassed how fast they are and how slow we are. Well, that's what missional communities do to us because we can sit here in rows all day long and look at the back of the, the head or the neck of the person who's in front of us and think, oh, I bet I could love them well. Oh, I bet my Christianity is better than their Christianity. And then all of a sudden, when we're in life together and we're like rubbing up against one another, we come to find out it doesn't matter how much Bible knowledge you have. Can you live it out? Like, is the Spirit at work in you? And we come to see, man, I can't, I can't live it out. I can't accomplish this on my own. This is only something that the Spirit of God can do through me as I live in His power. And so we learn what it looks like to live in the power of Jesus. And that comes together. But as I look at this passage that we're studying today, I've entitled this message, What Type of Disciple Are You? What type of disciple are you? If I'm honest with you guys, I'm concerned. As I look nine years down the road. And I'm not concerned because of our numbers and all that kind of stuff. Honestly, I'm kind of happy. We're like 125 folks. We're like 25% non-Caucasian. I think that's pretty cool. We've got huge adoption and foster care ministry. Like, There's a lot of things that I'm excited about, actually, that when God led us back to Memphis to plant this church, that we never dreamed would be a part of this little family. But what I'm concerned about is over the last months, and I I hope you'll hear my tone in what I want to share today, and if I offend anyone, I hope that if it's me offending you, then I hope you'll email me and, and that we can talk. If it's the gospel offending you, then I hope that you'll talk with Jesus. But I'm concerned 
Because over the last six months, the majority of passion and heated conversations and question and debate and discussions, and even people leaving the church, which hasn't been many, but a few, has not been over the concern that we follow Jesus and make disciples. Instead, our lives, and I'll include my life in this, so this message, please hear me say, this message is probably preaching more to me and our elders than it is to you guys. But our lives have been hijacked by endless debates surrounding COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement and masks and nonstop politics and now a Supreme Court justice approval and the November election. And hear me in saying that while all these matters, they are important. Yet the news cycle has become nothing more than a tabloid magazine. I remember when I was a young kid, I could walk to the grocery store and I, I kind of enjoyed being in the checkout aisle because there's all the good candy that mom will never let you get. And then on the other side, there's like crazy magazines. And as a young kid, there were like some inappropriate pictures. So, you know, you're like, as a young kid, you're like, whoa, like there's all this crazy. And then there would inevitably be some Hollywood star who they would publish in a tabloid like so-and-so has a baby and it's an alien. And you're like, how can they publish this and not be... I'm serious. Like that was, This is a real thing. And you knew it wasn't true. But it, you would kind of get tickled at the number of people who would pick magazines up and pay like good money to read trash. Just like pure fiction. And now it's on ABC News and NBC News and Fox News in the evenings. I mean, it's pure fiction. It's, it's taking facts and, and, and morphing them in such a way to fit a narrative depending on that news station. And we have become so caught up in all of this. And I want you to know that what I'm not saying that what is happening in our world isn't important. It's extremely important. But let me direct you to the one news source that always offers the truth and never changes. It's called the Bible. It's the Word of God. If you want to know what's going on in our world today, pick this book up and it will tell you exactly what's going on. It will tell you what was going on when the Roman world fell. I mean, Rome, there was no one bigger than Rome. And Rome came to an end. And so will our United States. And I don't wish for that. But if you want to know what's going on in our world, pick this book up. Because here's the danger. I fear that some of us have become so enamored with the latest junk food of our culture that we no longer find the healthy truths of God's Word to be appetizing. If you read God's Word and say, that's just kind of boring, I don't really have time for that, it's because you are feasting on the junk food of our culture because God's Word is never boring. As my old acquaintance Dave Clayton in Nashville has said, can we truly hunger for Jesus if our souls are satisfied with far lesser things? So, okay, introduction. Long introduction, right? I've, I've, I've kept my promise so far. Long introduction. Short message. 
The short message is this. You heard Jessica read the scriptures. I'm not going to read back through all the scriptures. There's three characters in this scripture. There's Jesus. There's actually Judas. There's Peter. And then there's Jesus. And Judas and Peter are a warning to us in our discipleship. Jesus clarifies what a real disciple looks like. Judas is a warning in this way. Judas shows us that it is a possibility to walk like a Christian and talk like a Christian and even act like a Christian and not be a Christian. And that is a huge danger. Peter is a warning to us that it's easy to defend Jesus while protecting your rights, but not many of us are ready to suffer without resisting and give up our rights. Jesus is going to show us this new and astonishing commandment in the way that he defines that we live, in the way that he says that we love, and you're going to see that it's impossible that it can only be accomplished through the Holy Spirit. So let's look really quick at this text. Verses 12 through 17, I had asked Jessica to read that because it was Passover time. We studied that last week. If you remember, Jesus is walking with his disciples. Uh, If you know anything about Pax Romana, you know that the road system, over a quarter of a million miles of roads had been laid incredible. We still, uh, if you go to this area, you'll still walk on some of these roads that Romans had built. Jesus walked with his disciples on these roads. That was a problem because as you walked on these roads, there was dust and uh, there was dirt and honestly, there was dung. And so that's a problem because all that kind of comes together and kids, there were no... So when I was growing up, Shaq had these shoes that were incredible. They had a little basketball on the tongue and you could pump them up. They were called pumps. And they cost like $100 more for that feature. But they didn't have any pumps. They didn't have any Jordans. They didn't have any Kobe's. They didn't even have any Heelys, the little shoes that have wheels on the bottom. They just had what we now refer to as Jesus shoes, right? A piece of leather with some sandal. uh, Leather that just strapped around your foot. And you're just kind of stuck with these open-toed sandals walking around. And so the problem is that Jesus shows up with his disciples. And none of the disciples are willing to wash anyone's feet because a disciple was someone who followed a rabbi and they they, a good disciple would be covered in the dust of his rabbi meaning he followed so closely to his rabbi that he did everything that his rabbi would do except for one thing which was to wash the feet and when you showed up at a feast like this uh, it would if you were showing hospitality you would wash the feet of your guest But even Jewish servants wouldn't take on this task. It was such a lowly task that only Gentile servants would be asked to do this. None of the disciples obviously stand up and volunteer. Hey, I'll wash the dung off of your feet. And so Jesus amazes everyone. Jesus, the one who is there at the beginning of creation... Jesus, the one who created, who took dust from the ground and made man. Jesus, who then lowered himself by coming. This is one of the mysteries of the Bible. Becoming fully man and fully God. Showing up Jesus, the one who is now going to give his life the next day on the cross as a ransom for many. Jesus takes off his outer garment, ties a towel around himself, and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And Jesus serves them. And he commands his disciples in verse 15. He says, this is an example that we should do 
that you should do likewise. Meaning, we talked about this last week, meaning love your greatest enemy. Serve them. Forgive them. Show kindness even to those who seek to destroy you. That's what Jesus did. He washed the feet of Judas. Now, verses 18 through 30, just a quick summary, is Jesus predicts Judas' betrayal. He predicts his betrayal. Um, There's this heightened atmosphere that John shows us. It's taking place here as Jesus predicts that one of the 12 disciples who's sitting around with him will betray him. And you know Peter. Peter's always like the first one to move. So Peter, like, he catches John's attention. John's beside Jesus. Peter does some kind of like head nod and, and ask him, ask him. And so John says, who is it, Jesus? And Jesus says, the one who lifts his heel against me. He quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And David was in Psalm 41. David was kind of a type or a shadow of Jesus. Meaning, David's life points us to Jesus as the true king. And to lift your heel against someone... To lift your heel against someone? Well, there's kids in the room. So, we lift fingers against someone would be the modern day translation, if you know what I mean. Um, maybe another example of that would be, remember back in 2008, uh, George Bush is in Iraq, and one of the Iraqi reporters threw his shoes at George Bush. Do you remember that? And every like secret service were concerned that there was a bomb in the shoe. There wasn't a bomb in the shoe. The man was saying, this is the greatest insult that I can show to you, George Bush. He was mad. So he threw his shoes to lift your heel against. Um, another way to think about that would be, what do you do if there's a snake and you have no way of killing it? It's about to strike you. You lift your heel against it. That's what Judas is doing to Jesus. Jesus is acknowledging that. And somehow the disciples don't catch on. And we don't quite know why. The, uh, John says that maybe they thought that Judas was going out since he was the treasurer to make preparation for the meal. Um, maybe there was some time in between the moments when Jesus said, the one I will give this bread to. And somehow the other disciples did not recognize when Jesus made that motion and gave the bread to Judas. But they miss it. But Judas in this moment shows us as he's so close to Jesus, as he's a friend of Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends, right? I mean, we think of Judas in a really bad light. Judas was one of Jesus' closest friends. Do you let your enemies handle your money? Only my closest friends. Even sometimes my kids are like, Dad, will you hold on to, but it's like, it's 50 bucks. Like, even sometimes my kids don't trust me, right? You only let your friends handle your money. Judas was the treasure. And Judas shows us that it's possible to walk like a Christian and talk like a Christian and even act like a Christian and not be a Christian. And I think that that is such an important message in the American church today. Because I think that's the case for many people who claim to be followers of Jesus. Because there's very little difference in their lives in the way that they love and the way that people who aren't Christians love. And Jesus is going to go on to show us that the primary way that others should know that we are followers of His is in the way we love. Not how much we know, but in the way 
we love. Paul would go on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, don't assume that you're a follower of Jesus. I mean, Paul, when he sees sin in the Corinthian church, he goes on to say, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The American church needs to be called to examine ourselves. And you know what I think one of the results that's happening as a result of the pandemic and COVID-19? I think the pandemic is causing the American church to examine themselves. And we're going to see that there are some who don't stick around because they were never really with Jesus in the beginning. If you jump down and you look at verses 36 through 38, we move from Judas to Peter. And just really quickly, I want to say that that Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And a lot of us are like Peter. We're really quick to jump in. We're like, how can I help? I'm here. I want to make a difference. I want to change the world. I might not be able to change the world, but I can at least change my city. All the while, we're not even seeing our households changed. And Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And what, just one of the things I want to point out about Peter, I want, to, I want to read this slowly. I think it was a quote that came from a commentary. This is not from me. I don't have it as a quote for you. Just listen. He was certainly ready to take up arms to defend his master, as he would do in the olive grove, yielding his sword against the servant of the high priest. So this is the thing that I've kind of... I think misunderstood about Peter. I've always thought, yeah, man, I'm like Peter sometimes. I'm really bold and then I'm really shy. I'm not sure that's what was going on with Peter. I think Peter was really bold in the olive grove when he pulls out a sword and he cuts off a guy's ear. Like Peter is prepared. He's prepared to duel with someone. That's pretty courageous. But the quote goes on to say, but to follow Jesus in the way of suffering without resistance proved to be more than he could bear. See, when Peter later, when he betrays, when he denies Jesus, there's a little slave girl. She has very little authority in this culture. And Peter is not ready to stand in that moment as he sees all his hopes and his dreams and honestly his own rights and what he has planned for his life as a follower of Jesus. He sees it all going down the tank because Jesus has been arrested and Jesus is like making these crazy predictions that he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think Peter's starting to figure out, this ain't going the way I thought it was going to go. And when Peter's rights are on the line, he steps back and he says, that dude, I got nothing to do with him. And I'm not sure as followers of Jesus, how many of us are prepared when it comes to laying our rights aside to continue to love others and follow Jesus if everything don't turn out like we want it to turn out. And Jesus is going to tell us in this text, and I just want to end with this, 
that the distinguishing feature of a Christian is how we love. In verses 31 through 35, Jesus is going to say, in verse 34, He's going to say, this new commandment that I give you, that you love one another. Now, it sounds like, this isn't new information. Jesus has said, love to others like you love yourself. That's a high degree of love. We love ourselves an awful lot, right? But Jesus ups the ante here. And he gives a command that's honestly impossible in your own strength. Listen to verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Man, what does that look like? What he said it earlier, what it looks like in Matthew chapter 5, in verses 43 through 48. Let me read this to you. This is the kind of love that Jesus is, is saying that we should display as his followers. He said, You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Let me just stop right here. Republican or Democrat. That means that the majority of your prayer life should be spent praying for the party that you oppose. Do you get that? I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That means as a follower of Jesus, there is no room to talk about the other political party that you oppose in a dehumanizing way. There is no room in the kingdom of God. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Man, that hurts. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Woo! That can only be lived out through the Spirit as we come to know Jesus and surrender our lives and our rights to Him and follow Him. And say, Jesus, you have works prepared in advance for me to walk in that are far greater and far more glamorous than the dreams that I could develop on my own if I held on to my rights. And that we surrender our rights. And that we follow Jesus. Because Jesus shows us that his kingdom is so upside down. Because in verse 31, I've got I've to wrap up. But he says in verse 31, so I want you to look at this this afternoon. He says that... Uh, Back in, in John, look at verse 31. This is nuts. Judas leaves, and, Pe- and Jesus, uh, John is so good at, at kind of contrasting this, this light and darkness. And he says, Judas leaves and it was dark. And Jesus responds to that by saying, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Now, I, I want just, as we end, listen to this. Jesus is saying 
That God's moment of supreme triumph is achieved through the betrayal, the humiliation, and the weakness of His Son who is going to be nailed to a cross by the very humans He created. That's going to be the glorification. The cross looks like Jesus' greatest moment of weakness, but it is actually the point when God undoes all of mankind's sin and reverses the consequences of the fall. And so I want you to think about how you march forward as a Christian in following Jesus, what it should look like. Look at this quote from um, a commentary on St. Helen's Bishop's Gate. If we want to see God honored by any means other than the exploration and explanation of the cross, we shall have missed the Jesus of John's gospel. And we shall be making the mistake that the crowds made. And what that quote means is we have to be careful that our lives don't become so infatuated in fighting and caring about good things, important issues that we begin to elevate our temporary rights in this temporary world over the eternal work of the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that the cross shouldn't influence the way in which we live our lives. It absolutely should. It should shape us in a radical sort of way that makes us strange to the culture that's around us. But the cross and the forgiveness of sin must take the pilot seat in the plane. There is no greater salvation or freedom or joy than knowing Jesus and introducing others to the one who died in our place, who's forgiven us, who has cleansed us of our sin. Because when we have that kind of relationship, it doesn't matter what society that we live in. We can be like the psalmist who in Psalm 27 one would say, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? It's like, how could he say that? Because he knew where his eternal home was. He knew this wasn't his home. Which is what Jesus is going to introduce to his disciples in the next chapter that we'll look at next week. We're called to love one another just as I have loved you. And simply what that means is that there is no particular movement in this world that doesn't have the cross of Jesus Christ at, this, at its center that is worthy of us giving our lives or our passions to. Jesus must be the passion of of our lives. And when Jesus has his appropriate place in our lives. Then all of a sudden. Our lives display his love. And all those other things that I've talked about. That are important issues. We begin to live in light of the gospel. And we begin to love and to speak into those other important issues. In a way, not in which we're keyboard warriors, treating people inhumanely, getting angry, being all over the place emotionally, but in a wise way learning how to love others and most importantly followers of Jesus 
remembering what is eternal and what really matters. And that is the lives and the souls of men and women. Because Judas walked out of the room and walked straight for hell. Make no mistake about it. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone in all the Bible. And Jesus made it very clear that those who turn away from him and don't see him as the God of the universe and the Lord of their life will spend eternity apart from him. You can call that judgment um, or you can call that God being hospitable, not demanding something of you that you didn't demand your entire life. Jesus calls us to make him primary in our lives. I want to invite the band to come up and as you consider just um, where you're at, as Jesus first and foremost in your life as the band comes up, I want you to just, you can close your eyes if you want. I want you to listen to this psalm. I want to end with it, part of a psalm. Psalm 90. Listen to this. The psalmist writes and he gives us such clarity on our lives and where we live. Listen to this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. That's what our lives are. They're a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. There's some hard things in here. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. And in the evening it fades and withers. For we're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. I just turned 44 yesterday. 54, 64. I might have 30 good years left. I want them to matter for all of eternity. 70 or 80 years, that's all you got. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Psalm 90, verse 14. Read it this week. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Pray with me. God, satisfy us in the morning that we may rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love all our days. Satisfy us, Lord. Give us a heart of wisdom that we would turn away from the temporal things, that we would... That the passion of our hearts would be first and foremost for you as a church and as a people. Because God, we'll live so much more joyous lives. God, we'll live lives in which uh, we aren't in a hurry. Because we know that you hold all time. 
We'll live lives in which our burden is easy because we don't try to carry the burden of this world that only you can carry. But God, we'll live lives of joy because we'll know that you are the ultimate one who who always brings satisfaction. So satisfy us, O Lord. Remind us of the truth of your word, even as we stand together and as we sing this song together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand together with us and sing together.